Hello, and welcome to Heard About, the podcast about the biggest moments in communications with the people who are behind them. I'm your host, Winston Chang. Tomorrow's President's Day. It's a federal holiday, but a recent Bloomberg survey found that only about 40% of employers give it as a day off. So if you're enjoying a long weekend right now, try not to rub it in. Actually, on the subject, did you know it's not even officially called President's Day? At least not by the federal government, which still calls it Washington's birthday. It's been renamed by 22 states to celebrate, you know, all presidents. And apparently because President's Day sale sounds better than Washington's birthday sale. Anyway, today we're commemorating the holiday, whatever you want to call it, and whether you've got the day off or not, on this podcast. And not just with great deals on cars, furniture, and appliances, we're talking to Kurt Smith, former speechwriter for President George H.W. Bush. Never heard of him? He probably prefers it that way. And my, my view always has been on presidents of speechwriting. If you want to make a name for yourself, write a book. Go write a play. Go star in something. But let your ego at the door and keep it there because you're not there to speak as you would but rather as the president would. Today, Kurt's a lecturer at the University of Rochester in New York. But back when he was still in politics, he wrote more speeches for Bush 41, both during and after his presidency, than any other writer. And he was there for at least one significant shift in the White House. We were there during a great transition, going from typewriter to computer. And since I'm technologically enough to begin with, This is a great challenge for me. Today, we're talking to Kurt about growing up with a love for writing, working for Bush Sr., and a few major speeches he worked on for the president on the National Deficit, Operation Desert Storm, and the 50th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Then, we'll talk about how people are more afraid of public speaking than heights, snakes, and drowning. And Kurt will give you a few pointers that might help with that, too. So, let's begin. Uh, So you're well known as a prolific speechwriter for President H.W. Bush, for President Bush Sr., but it must have been quite a journey to get there. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how it all started? Well, I grew up in upstate New York in a small town, and... uh, uh, but I've always loved to write. It's one of the few things I think that I do with, with some facility. Uh, I was writing uh, screenplays, not that anyone would ever look at them, when I was 10 or 11 years old. I wrote all through my teen years, went through school, graduated uh, from uh, uh, SUNY at Geneseo in upstate New York. Then, because the 1980 presidential election was upon us, and because I'd always been fascinated in politics, I uh, chose a candidate. His name was John Connolly. He had been the uh, uh, Secretary of Treasury for President Nixon, Secretary of Navy for President Kennedy, three-term governor of Texas, a terrific public speaker. But he was up against the supernova, the preternatural candidate known as Ronald Wilson Reagan. And Reagan took us to the cleaners in 1980. He had a great uh, uh, facility for doing that to all of his opponents during his career. And after that... um, I was asked to come back to Washington or to go to Washington uh, and become uh, a speechwriter 
senior speechwriter for several cabinet members of the, of the Reagan administration. And I spent five years doing that, trying to get paid by the word. It didn't work too well, but I did manage to write a number of speeches for different cabinet members. And of course, during that time, George H.W. Bush was the vice president to Ronald Reagan. He was a marvelous partner for Reagan. Reagan grew to have great affection for him. And so in 1988, Bush becomes the Republican candidate for president of the United States. And that's how I became a, became a writer for one of the great foreign policy presidents, particularly, I think, in the history of this country. Uh, I'd love to get to know about your experience day to day in the White House. Walk us through your process uh, writing a, a speech for the president. First of all, there is no weekend for anyone who works in the White House uh, because it's it's really a a, a seven uh, day a week uh, occupation. You would get there uh, early in the uh, in the morning, and by that I mean about seven thirty or eight o'clock. And sometimes you would have senior staff meetings in the speech writing office. We had five writers um, in in the Bush White House. Uh, you would have telephone calls with uh, political people around the country, policy people as well. But it focused upon the writing, the drafting. Uh, in my office had a couch which I occupied uh, many many nights as I was. Uh, as I was uh, writing until 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night, or waiting for other people to get back to me with their critique, which came to be known as the staffing process. And at some point, you would come up with a draft. And at that point, the, uh, the process of getting the president's approval came, uh, came upon you as well. Mm -hmm. So who would have to look at a typical speech? You would, you would give it to the uh, director of the speech uh, uh, staff to begin with. We had five writers and then we had uh, an editor, speech editor by the name of Chris Winston, who did a terrific job. So she would get the speech and uh, come back to you with different critiques. Um, and, and most of them, or some of them at least, you would accept and some you would not. Um, it then went to, uh, to the staffing process. And this could, this could vary in size from maybe five or six from a political speech so let's say it was a speech on uh, on the Americans for Disabilities Act. Uh, I contributed slightly to that, but I remember that that had an enormous, uh, uh, if I recall correctly, staffing process. Foreign policy as well, because foreign policy had to be run by the uh, the State Department, uh, often the Department of Defense, the National Security Advisor. Uh, and political people as well. So that might, that might come as many as 15 to 20. How did you make sure that it was in Bush's voice, not yours, not anybody else's, but his, right? Or, or was there a sense in which you wanted to give him a better voice than the one that he might naturally have? There was the urge in you to do what, what you thought was best for him, but he wanted you to speak in his voice, and it's incumbent on any speechwriter to speak in the president's voice, not in your voice. For example, with Bush, he was very much uh, a president of the greatest generation. My goodness, he was a he was a war hero at 20 years old when his plane was shot down in the Pacific Theater in 1944. Uh, 
Well, I wanted to uh, to uh, use a, a, a frame of reference that that might uh, uh, include popular culture, uh, and I would give him something that might be germane to my generation, being several uh, generations younger than him, uh, but that would that would not resonate that would not uh, be be resonant with him. He wouldn't say it if it didn't matter to him. He wouldn't say it if he didn't understand what it was. So, for example, um, in terms of, of culture, when I would uh, uh, reference a, uh, a singer or an actor today, he would say, I don't understand this. Give me something else. And I did. And what I did inevitably was give him Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. <laughs> I did it for several reasons. First of all, because it mattered most to him. Secondly, because I happen to like Hope and Crosby too. I mean, they're, they're uh, timeless. And third, because I knew it would work, because I knew that Bush's audiences would also love Hope and Crosby, and they did. Kurt and I talked about three speeches related to landmark moments in H.W.'s presidency, beginning with one he gave to the American people on October 2nd, 1990, related to the national deficit. It was shortly after the beginning of Operation Desert Shield, which sent U.S. troops into Saudi Arabia after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. As we speak, our nation is standing together against Saddam Hussein's aggression. But here at home, there's another threat, a cancer gnawing away at our nation's health. That cancer is the budget deficit. A deficit just means, in any given year, the government's spending more money than it's bringing in, which means its national debt is growing. It's been a hot topic this past year, with the government spending quite a bit on COVID relief and stimulus packages. Now, just like with your own personal budget, to get rid of a deficit, you could do one of two things. Spend less money, or make more money. And Bush 41's administration had a plan to do both. For the first time, a Republican president and leaders of a Democratic Congress have agreed to real cuts that will be enforced by law, not promises. No smoke, no mirrors, no magic act, but real and lasting spending cuts. This agreement will also raise revenue. I'm not, and I know you're not, a fan of tax increases. But if there have to be tax measures, they should allow the economy to grow. They should not turn us back to higher income tax rates, and they should be fair. But that October 2, 1990 speech actually had some pretty serious consequences for his presidency. Here's Kurt to provide some context. Yeah, the deficit was, was really a sticky wicket, as the Brits would say, uh, that, that, that really bedeviled Bush throughout his presidency. Um, in 1985, uh, Congress had passed the Graham-Rudman-Hollings Act, and it mandated a zero federal deficit, budget deficit, by 1991. Well, good luck. He inherited, Bush had, uh, a huge deficit. And by 1991, as I recall, the budget deficit had soared from $111 billion to 171. He's not close to, in essence, to a zero uh, federal budget deficit. So... Um, he was told by, by his financial advisors that unless he cut the deficit by at least $64 billion, Graham Rudman would enter the fray. 
and it would slash every entry in a federal budget by 40%. Defense would be slashed by 40%. Our, our, our uh, defenses against uh, aggression would, would, uh, would fail. Farming, education, the elderly, all by 40%. Bush could not possibly agree with that. Yet, how did you get the Democrats to agree? Well, they said basically that uh, uh, they would meet him halfway. Remember, Bush had pledged in his campaign in 1988 at the convention. Read my lips. No new taxes. My opponent now says he'll raise them as a last resort or a third resort. But when a politician talks like that, you know that's one resort he'll be checking into. And I... My opponent... My opponent won't rule out raising taxes. But I will, and the Congress will push me to raise taxes, and I'll say no. And they'll push, and I'll say no. And they'll push again, and I'll say to them, read my lips. No new taxes. That was central to his campaign of 88. But here he finds that he really must raise taxes or the economy is going to go in free fall. So basically they came up with, with uh, as the speech is made clear, uh, there would be entitlement uh, budget reform, there would be defense and domestic discretionary spending uh, cuts, and there would be taxes to cut the deficit. So he had to present that to the American public. And he didn't do so at first. There was only literally, as I recall, a two-paragraph of uh, uh, entry that was posted on the bulletin board, in essence, in the uh, in the uh, in the White House, that he would entertain now what he had refused to do before, and that is to raise taxes. He did so in the best interest of America. He did so that so that the market wouldn't tank by by this incredibly uh, uh, draconian, if you would, cut. In domestic spending, as well as in as, as well as uh, in defense, but it hurt him enormously among particularly conservatives and the average person, because he had gone back. They thought on his word. He thought he had done so, perhaps, but certainly in the best interest of the country. We never made that clear. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to to follow up on that. As a speechwriter, how do you think about um, crafting language when? the president has to, at least in perception, uh, go back on his word and and walk back the famous read my lips, no new taxes statement at the at the RNC in 1988. You try to frame it in terms of, of what's best for the country. The difficulty is Graham, Rudman, discretion, outlay, this kind of thing. They're phrases that are somewhat foreign to the average person. It's not easy to understand. And I don't think that we, we, we put enough emphasis into um, making the American people understand, because as you suggest, this is about the time that Bush engineered what is one of the great American uh, foreign policy feats in this country's history. And that is, of course, his decision to oppose and then to create the, the great allied armada, the greatest since World War II, to drive Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. As a speechwriter, do you think about being really direct and saying, you know, um, 
I'm not a speech writer, so I wouldn't put this in, in eloquent terms, but but something along the lines of I know I said this and and quoting himself even the, the read my lips, no new taxes line. And this is why it's changed. And this is why it's important that we change it. Um, and, and this is why we have taxes now. Did, did you ever think of being that direct and uh, confrontational with the elephant in the room? Not not personally. I don't think that, that is uh, proper uh, for a speechwriter to do. Uh, however, in memo and in, in uh, speeches to others who might influence him, uh, yes, very direct. Because I could see being a conservative myself, coming from a small town, middle America, understanding in essence, I thought and think the average Republican, the, the average a member of the silent majority, uh, the disquiet that this was causing, and I felt that that we had to we had to address it at some point. We tried, but but I will admit, not with a great deal of elegant, elegance or eloquence or success. You just heard us talking about Operation Desert Shield and the International Armada Kurt mentioned that President Bush formed. That all laid the groundwork for Operation Desert Storm, the invasion of Iraq. The president delivered that speech on January 16, 1991. Just two hours ago, Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. These attacks continue as I speak. Ground forces are not engaged. This conflict started August 2nd, when the dictator of Iraq invaded a small and helpless neighbor. Kuwait, a member of the Arab League and a member of the United Nations, was crushed. Its people brutalized. Five months ago, Saddam Hussein started this cruel war against Kuwait. Tonight, the battle has been joined. So let's talk about Desert Storm. Uh, what was the speech writing for that particular piece like? Well, it was a, a fascinating and historic, I think, half year in the White House because um, Saddam Hussein had invaded in July to August of 19. 19- 90. And so for that half a year, he tried to avoid war. He, he, he wielded the largest, as I said, allied armada uh, to try to uh, convince Saddam Hussein to peacefully depart. He wouldn't. And so as a result, I'll never forget the night that Bush uh, in, uh, announced that uh, Iraq would be invaded uh, or who, who Kuwait would be invaded, then Iraq, was uh, I went to the White House that night because the, 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 the sense of calm, if you would, the quiet, was really quite stark and stunning. Uh, and I tried to remember past history, past American presidents who had declared war. FDR, of course, immediately came to mind, and that had been 50 years before. 1941, Pearl Harbor. 1991, he declares war uh, with, with Operation Desert Storm. But I'll remember, never forget the just or the uh, speech that he gave in late 1990, in which for the first time was for the, to the veterans of foreign affairs in Baltimore. I think in September of 90, it was the first time that he that he said that Saddam Hussein was another Hitler. He and I went back and forth on that, and he was very strong that in his view, uh, Saddam Hussein, what he was trying to do was aggression, and he used the, the phrase time and again. And this was his own phrase, this aggression will not stand. 
Was there any hesitation uh, in for you initially in comparing Hussein to Hitler, or did that, that was that something that came real instinctively and really naturally? I think it came instinctively to him, and once he'd said it, of course it made sense, because he had been a part of the Greatest Generation, and he had seen how how democracies crumbled in the 1930s because they would not confront aggression. And so the life lesson of that was always foremost in his mind. Fast forwarding to the end of that year, December 7th, 1991. It was the 50th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. President Bush delivered a speech that day at the USS Arizona Memorial in Honolulu, Hawaii. Think of how it was for these heroes of the harbor, men who were also husbands, fathers, brothers, sons. Imagine the chaos. Imagine the chaos of guns and smoke, flaming water, and ghastly carnage. 2,403 Americans gave their lives. But in this haunting place, they live forever in our memory, reminding us gently, selflessly, like chimes in the distant night. I was curious about this particular speech, especially because the president had fought in World War II himself. Well, he was going to Hawaii on the 50th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. Put yourself in his shoes. He'd been 17 years old when the Japanese had attacked Pearl. December 7, 1941. The next day, on Monday, he'd gone down to the draft office, wanted to enlist. They said, Sonny, you're too, you're too young. Go back when you're 18. He came back the day he turned 18. He was the Navy's youngest bomber pilot. Uh, and he, as I said, had almost lost his life. Friends of his had died at Pearl Harbor. Bush was a, was a very emotional man, uh, uh, very sentimental, uh, very loyal. Uh, and this is evident in Pearl. As we were talking in advance, uh, we probably I probably uh, worked with him for three to four weeks in advance of the speech. And he said, you know, I've got to be careful. I don't want to lose control. He knew himself very well. He knew that, that you know, this the crescendo of memory 50 years ago, people having died, himself almost died, uh, a national, a national uh, uh, on his part, um, fidelity and, and being drawn to foreign policy. So I wrote the draft in conjunction with him, and uh, he read it, uh, liked it, and thought it worked, thought it would be appropriate for the memory of the, of the, of the living and the dead. He would give the speech, of course, uh, uh, at Pearl, uh, atop uh, the battleship Arizona, where more than 1,100 people had died. Anybody that goes to Pearl Harbor, it's really sacred American soil. It's like Normandy, in my view, in France. So he gave the speech. Um, I knew him so well by then that I told my wife, this is the line that's going to cause him emotional trouble, and it did. There were three points in the speech where his voice cracked, particularly toward the end where he said, God bless America, the greatest land on earth. Look at the water here clear and quiet, bidding us to sum up and remember. One day, in what now seems another lifetime, it wrapped its arms around the finest sons any nation could ever have. 
married them to a better world. May God bless them. May God bless America. One land on earth. Now that was an ad lib by his. We had not written it in the speech. Um, and this is a this is a case where he knew the speech. Uh, it was a part of him. I learned later. I I was in Washington working, but I watched on television. I learned later that he almost didn't give the speech because he knew emotionally what it would be, and he didn't want to lose control. He thought that that would be unworthy for a president. And yet, several key members of his of his staff that were with him uh, and whom he trusted told him, "This is the speech. You should give the speech." It will be a speech of which you will be proud. You might have a, a unique perspective on this too, because uh, you continue to write for a decade after Bush left the White House. Um, is there there a sense in which you're you're always when he's president writing for the American people because even if he's talking to a small group, uh, a small audience, you know that some audio or some video or some transcript of his speech is going to get out, and so you're in a sense always writing, assuming that everyone in the world is going to read it. And then does that change a lot after he leaves the office? <laughs> well, I can tell you this. Bush was much more relaxed uh, and probably a better public speaker after he left the presidency than during. This is true, incidentally, of almost every uh, former president or every former candidate who has been nominated and lost the election. They become much more relaxed. Uh, they don't feel as nervous. They don't feel the mental angst. They don't feel that every word is being micromanaged. They feel that they can make a mistake. They feel that they can let go. Uh, the humor that uh, that uh, uh, was was employed by Bush for the decade after uh, he left the presidency, I think, was uh, was given in a way. He was a better public speaker. He felt he had less to lose, and I think this is natural. Uh, when when you as a as a speaker give a give a State of the Union address or an inaugural, uh, you're going to feel butterflies. But as someone once said to me about butterflies. Uh, the trick is to get them to fly in straight formation. And and uh, Bush did with, with some frequency as president. He did with greater frequency as a former president. I think in that sense that he's very much the rule, not the exception of former presidents. And then for you, as a former presidential speech writer, what do you see or what do you notice? What do you pick up on as you watch um, presidents give speeches that, you know, the average viewer wouldn't pick up on. It's interesting that you ask, because uh, in 1993, when Clinton was giving a, uh, uh, a speech on health care, what I later learned about some former, undoubtedly former, I suspect, aide of his, had by mistake, instead of putting in the, the last draft of, of, of his speech, the last half of his speech, um, let's say the 25th draft, that would have been the last draft, that would have been the, the formal draft. Let's say instead of the 25th draft, that aide had put in the 20th draft or even the 23rd draft. It's totally, um, 
it's totally uh, of, of no use at that point. It's useless because things change between the 23rd and the 25th round. So you're putting yourself in Clinton's mind. He's at the halfway point of his, uh, of his speech in 1993. Teleprompter speech before, before the uh, Congress when he suddenly realizes, my goodness, wrong draft of the speech. The genius of Bill Clinton is a public speaker. Watching on television at home, I couldn't tell any difference. In short, Winston, Clinton ad-libbed the last half of his speech to the, to the Congress and to the country but knew the speech so well by then and knew what he was supposed to say, that he, that he ad-libbed uh, adroitly and as far as I could see with no miscue at all. Trust me, that is not true of most public speakers. If they had the wrong draft in the uh, teleprompter, you would know instantly that that had been the case. Not true of Clinton. And uh, in the 94th State of the Union Address, he began by saying, I'm not sure what draft is in the teleprompter tonight. So you, so you see, the presidency is hardly perfect, no matter who occupies the Oval Office. Now, I bet a lot of you are sweating just thinking about going up to a podium and realizing you've got the wrong speech in front of you. And you're not alone. It's very interesting. This is something that I that I tell my class every term, my my presidential rhetoric uh, class, uh, and of course my public speaking class every term. I say if you consult Lou Harris or the Gallup poll, the best of all in my view, or John Zogby, a terrific pollster, they're the best of the bunch, and they will tell you the polls that they have taken show that the asking the average American what most terrifies you on the planet Earth. They will not say uh, being in a car crash. They will not say losing their house. They will say giving a public speech. So I asked Kurt for one piece of advice, the best tip he can give on public speaking. Practice, practice, practice. I don't recommend uh, memorizing a speech word for word because anyone who's ever uh, been in a play or, or you know, an, an off-Broadway production or something of this ilk, or giving, a, or giving a speech that they have memorized. If you lose and forget where you are or you forget a line, it's like a train having fallen off the tracks. And it's very difficult to get to uh, a situation where you climb back on those tracks. But what I suggest is that you memorize the structure of a speech, the general structure. Uh, so that you practicing a speech, if you may say uh, a given sentence ten different ways, who cares? You're the only one who knows. When you give the speech, however, if you've done the proper preparation, you will know what you're trying to say in that sentence, and in the next sentence, and in the sentence that follows, because you know the structure of the speech. It's like taking the train, if you would, from let's say uh, Buffalo, New York, to New York City. You know exactly how that train goes. You don't know exactly how each bounce and, uh, and, and jumps and, and bounce will be. You don't necessarily know the condition of the scenery that you will see uh, as, you, uh, as you advance from point A to point B, but you know where you're going. That's the best advice I would have. 
Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Heard About. That was Kurt Smith, speechwriter for former President George H.W. Bush, who now teaches at the University of Rochester in New York. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Kurt, and keep tuning in every other Sunday for new episodes. This has been your host, Winston Chang. Until next time.